Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. This is your host, Shahna Zaqani, and today we will be talking with Shadab Rahmatullah about his book, Quran of the Oppressed, Liberation Theology and Gender Justice in Islam, published with Oxford University in 2017. Rahmatullah holds a PhD in Modern Islamic Thought from the University of Oxford. He is lecturer in Islam and Christian-Muslim Relations at the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. His book, Quran of the Oppressed, is a compelling comparative analysis of the works of four Muslim scholars of Islam, Asghar Ali Engineer, Farid Isaac, Amina Wadud, and Asma Barlas. The book serves as an excellent introduction to the works of these scholars and is complete with a clear, thorough, and rich analysis of the ways that they approach Islam's most important scripture as a liberating text to respond to various issues such as patriarchy, racism, and interreligious conflict. The book relies not only on their written works, but also on Rahmatullah's in-depth interviews with them. Each chapter is dedicated to an individual scholar and begins with an introduction to their backgrounds with a discussion of the political, social, and other contexts that shape their respective scholarship. While deeply appreciative of their works, Rahmatullah also carefully addresses the drawbacks of their arguments and methodologies and offers correctives when useful. Quran of the Oppressed is an accessible text that can be read by anyone with an interest in religion, gender, and liberation theology. It can be assigned in undergraduate and graduate classes, and it will also be of interest to anyone looking to better understand the ways that modern religious communities interpret their scriptures as a source of liberation and justice. Without further ado, here's my discussion with Shadab Rahmatullah. Hi, Shadab. Thank you so much for joining me today for, uh, for, the, for the New Books in Islamic Studies podcast. Um, as I was just telling you, I really enjoyed your book, um, Quran of the Oppressed, Liberation Theology and Gender Justice in Islam. And I'm very excited to be able to talk to you about it. So thank you for being here with us. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Great. So um, before before we get to the actual book, um, like I said, we like to begin with um, talking to the author about their intellectual journey. Um, could you introduce yourself uh, and describe your intellectual journey and specifically, hopefully also your journey towards this book? Sure. Um, so I'm a Canadian Muslim of Indian descent. I grew up in Vancouver. That's my hometown. Um, and I had I had a very religious upbringing. I'm a Sushi, so my my dad is Ethnoshri, she Ethnoshri, and my mom is a Sydney, so I'm an honorary Sushi. Um, and that was really cool because I sort of grew up in two communities, Shia and Sunni, at the same time. And my upbringing, which was predominantly Shia, was 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 very religious, uh, very strong focus on rituals, on spirituality, and it was a very meaningful upbringing. Um, and that was an important part of me, but there was also another part of me that was really drawn to social justice and social liberation struggles. Um, I was always very vested in the Palestinian cause. Um, I was very vested in workers' rights and the rights of 
indigenous peoples in Canada. And in a sense, I felt ripped apart because in the mosque, we were focusing on submission to Allah, right? Through the teachings and guidance of the Ahlul Bayt, uh, the people of the house, the imams uh, and the companions of the prophet and so forth. And again, it was very meaningful, but practice was defined very much in terms of ritual and a particular understanding of piety that was centered on rituals. And I mixed with certain people in that setting. When I was protesting on the street, I mixed with people from a very different background. I mixed with Marxists, socialists, people who didn't believe in God, who outright rejected God, but who had the most incredible practice, a practice that was committed to social liberation. And so I felt ripped apart. And then when I discovered liberation theology, all of a sudden it was for me like the meeting of the two great seas, where I could have the dogma that I wanted, which was an enchanted dogma, a dogma of faith, a dogma of submission, but the practice that I needed, which was one of social liberation and resistance, I could bring them together. And liberation theology allowed me to do that. And that's what brought me to my book. It wasn't an immediate realization on my part. It took a long time. But that is essentially what this book is about. It's about piecing together, for myself as the author, these two halves, one of dogma and the other of a liberating practice. So in, in the book, you're highlighting here, uh, in, again, in very articulate and very clear ways, um, especially for readers who are not familiar or who, who haven't yet read these books um, or these particular scholars, um, the approaches, the scholarship, the arguments of four of the most influential scholars of our time. Um, how did you choose these individuals and why? Okay, so I was looking at, at, at two things. So number one, a focus on social justice, right? So I was looking for Muslim intellectuals who are undertaking liberative readings of Islamic texts, but with a particular eye to social marginalization and oppression. Right now, we have tons of books that deal with Islam and modernity, trying to have liberal democratic readings of Islam. This is sort of a part of that, but it's also sort of not, because it's focusing in particular on the problem of oppression. So that was one thing. I wanted to look at scholars who were focusing on social justice. But at the same time, I wanted to have some methodological rigor in looking at scholars who are undertaking liberative readings of the same foundational text, and that would be the Qur'an. So I picked the two main scholars uh, who work on liberation theology who focus on the Qur'an, the South African Farida Saq and the Indian Asghar the engineer who passed away in 2012, may he rest in power. And I looked at uh, two leading gender egalitarian interpreters of the Qur'an, the African-American Amin Wadud and the Pakistani-American scholar Asma Barlas. Um, right now, the state of the field, we have liberative readings of various Islamic texts. We have liberative readings of the Hadith, of Sharia, the Islamic legal tradition, even of Tasawwuf, the mystical tradition. And so for the purposes of rigor, I wanted to focus methodologically on one particular text, and that would be the Qur'an. Hmm. Who's the oppressed in the title of the book? That's a great question. So for me, the oppressed refer to those who are dominated by a privileged other. And so what that means is that the oppressed, the meaning of it would change depending on the particular social context in question. The oppressed would mean something particular in a context of gender inequality 
while meaning something else in the context of economic deprivation, while meaning something else in the context of apartheid. And yet, because of the intersectionality and messiness of our lives, with gender intersecting with race and class and geography, it also means all of those things. So there is a fluid understanding of the oppressed, but the idea behind using the term oppressed is to underline that this is a relational concept. To talk about the oppressed is simultaneously to talk about an oppressing party. And for me, that's very important in any meaningful engagement with issues of social justice. We're going to talk about those who are wronged. We have to talk about those who have benefited from that wronging. So in the context of patriarchy, we need to talk about the privilege of men. In the context of occupation, we need to talk about the occupier and not just the occupied. And a big part of that talking is the challenge to think socially. So when I talk about oppression and by extension, the oppressed and oppressor, I'm not talking about individuals per se, but I'm talking about social groups. So this is a relational category between social groups and a relationship that is parasitical in which the oppressor lives off the oppressed. Mm, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, so most people think of Christianity and Christian studies when they have when they hear the word um, or the phrase liberation theology. Could you tell us about liberation theology and its relationship with Islam or rather with scholarship on Islam? Um, and in particular, if the scholars that you're engaging in the study in, in your study here themselves identify as liberation theologians or scholars of liberation theology, etc. Now, because I, I remember from the book that um, some of them specifically refer to themselves, at, they prefer they don't mm. refer to themselves as liberation the theologians. They prefer liberating theology in some cases as opposed to liberation theology. I, I want to say here, I have a feeling that this question might sound like um, the very sometimes, not always, but sometimes very ignorant question of what is the role of feminism in Islam or what is the position of feminism? You know, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so, I, so to be clear, I'm not asking, you know, how can Islam accommodate liberation theology and vice versa, but instead, um, you know, what is the relationship between, you know, scholarship on Islam and liberation theology generally, especially because we think of, many people think of Christians and Christianity and Christian studies uh, when we think about liberation theology. Okay, so to engage uh, your question, which is an excellent question, I'm going to engage it in pieces because it's, it's a complex, multifaceted question. So let me start by accenting the foundational similarity between Islamic liberation theology and Christian liberation theology, because I think emphasizing that that similarity is very important to start with. Liberation theology ultimately is about challenging the idea that religion falls out of the sky. All right. At its core, that's what it's about. So the idea is that, look, what I have right in front of me now in terms of ideas and practices about religion are not actually directly from the unseen, the transcendent, in the case of Muslims, Allah, but they are mediated by human beings, both the interpretations and the practices. And herein lies the problem. Human beings, people, society, none of them are equal. We're not equal. So the mediations that we have of religion are the mediations not of society as a whole, but of the privileged center of that society. So the first task of liberation theology, Islamic, Christian, or otherwise, is one of deconstruction, of actually looking at how the privilege in our society whether they be men or heterosexuals or people who, are, who have economic affluence, how they have established understandings of religion that work to the benefits 
of their social group at the expense of other social groups that lie on the margins of society. So the first task is one of deconstruction. And then with that task of deconstruction is one of a radical liberative reconstruction to reinterpret religious concepts and practices from the perspectives and lived experiences of those who have been on the outside, those who have been looking in the window from the outside and allowing them to enter the interpretive circle and to have an engagement with the text that can speak to their own problems, challenges, and concerns. So let me start with that foundational similarity. Now, in terms of the problematics, right? Um, liberation theology is usually seen as Christian. And for me, that's because theology as a whole, when we talk about theology or use the term theology in Western languages, would have, which have a lot of epistemic baggage that come with them, a lot of baggage rooted in a particular European and Christian history, theology ends up being Christian theology. So theological problems end up being Christian theological problems. And that's why, for me, liberation theology is associated with Christian liberation theology. We have liberation theology in Islam. Farid Ishaq and Asghar Lee Engineer both explicitly identify as liberation theologians. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you need to identify as a liberation theolo- theologian to do liberation theology. And that brings up the question, what's in the name? For me, I don't really care about the name. For me, what matters is the actual practice. If you look at the history of Islam in the last 200 years, in many ways, it has been a history of liberation theology. And here I'm referring to the great anti-colonial struggles that Muslims have spearheaded against Western empire in the 1800s and the first half of the 1900s, and indeed continue to do so in the case of Palestine, for example. Um, what's in the name? It doesn't have to be called liberation theology, but de facto, that's what it actually is. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. Um, could you now briefly summarize for our listeners and the primary hermeneutical methods and methodologies of the scholars in the study, and specifically those ones that are unique to them? That's a really important question. The issue of methodology is fundamental. In order to arrive at liberative understandings of the Quran, we need to think not only about the who question, so who is interpreting the text and for whom, but also the how question. How are we producing understanding when we engage the text? And here, the scholars of this book put forth and use a number of different methods. So a method that Farid Ishaq uses is praxis. And praxis is a signature method of liberation theology. Um, Us academics, we love to use fancy terms, but they mean very simple things. Praxis refers not simply to practice, but more specifically to a liberating practice. So praxis in liberation theology refers to a commitment to the struggle, whatever that struggle may be. The idea is that a liberating theology cannot be produced by an armchair intellectual. She has to enter the street where the struggles are taking place, commit herself first and foremost to to those struggles, and then theological understanding is produced in that particular liberative context. Um, So that's something that Farid Isaac really focuses on. His book, Quran, Liberation and Pluralism, an Islamic perspective on interreligious solidarity against oppression, that is a liberating fruit that is born out of a particular liberating struggle, a lifelong struggle, the South African struggle against apartheid. 
of which Fridis Haq was a pivotal component of. So praxis is a very important method. Two important methods that gender egalitarian theologians like Amanu Adud and Asma Barlas have used extensively are historical contextualization and textual holism. Historical contextualization is understanding, appreciating that the Qur'an emerged, was revealed in a particular context that was over a millennium away from our own context. The Qur'an emerged in 7th century Arabia, so we need to understand how that text, while talking to humanity as a whole, is speaking first and foremost to the context of that time. So for example, if we look at a verse like Quran 4.34, which begins with the phrase, Men are the maintainers of women. We need to understand what that would mean in a society in which men were the principal breadwinners. Uh, the logic being that if men are the principal breadwinners, then they should have a certain amount of authority that comes with that. Now, the question is, if we're interpreting and engaging that particular verse in the 21st century, where women are not only earning next to men, but in many cases are the principal earners or the only earners, how do we make sense of that text? Um, and this is not a minority experience. In Egypt, one third of families have women as the principal earner. My own family, my mother was the principal earner of the family. And so she would leave while it was still dark. And she would come home in the evening while it was dark. Uh, and she wasn't going to come home and be told, you know, this is how it's going down. When she came home, she was like, this is how it's going down. There were fundamental implications in terms of her spending for the family and her earning for the family and how authority was delegated within the family. So historical contextualization is not just about contextualizing the Quran in its own context, but recontextualizing it in light of our own context. Another very important method is textual holism. Asma Barlas emphasizes that in order to understand one aspect of the Qur'an, we have to look at other aspects of the Qur'an. Any discourse has a limited number of terms, phrases, indeed assumptions. So we need to approach the Qur'an as a unified text. And therefore, when we see phrases um, that may pose a challenge to contemporary understandings of gender inequality, one way in which we can grapple with those phrases is to look at how those phrases are used in other parts of the text. So, for example, if you look at uh, the last part of Quran 434, which says, literally, if you translate it literally and beat them, we need to see it, how daraba as a verb is used in other parts of the text, and we see different meanings. So one meaning that's brought up quite a bit in feminist circles is, uh, Don't you see how God strikes examples? So here, daraba is used in a particularly symbolic way. Now, the idea is not to put forth an apologetic argument, to say, look, throughout history, we've understood daraba the wrong way, and this is the right way. The idea is to understand the gendered politics of interpretation. If daraba has a plethora, a spectrum of meanings, why is it that one particular meaning, a meaning that worked to the detriment of women as a social group, to the benefit of men as a social group, why was that elevated to the level of literal meaning and we don't even know about these other meanings or take them seriously in a way that has implications in terms of social and gendered life? So to rehash what I've just said, these are three methods among others that they use. Praxis historical contextualization, and textual holism. 
I really appreciated and benefited from your critiques of Fazlur Rahman's double movement theory. Now you speak, for example, of its elitism. Can you explain how this theory is potentially at least elitist? And for those listeners who are not familiar with it, could you tell us, remind us what the theory is? Let me start off by saying that Fazlur Rahman is an extremely important Islamic scholar. For those of you who don't know, he was an Islamic studies scholar from Pakistan, and he had to go into exile uh, because of his criticism of the military status quo in Pakistan. And he first taught in Canada at McGill University, and then he taught in the United States at the University of Chicago. He has had a huge impact on contemporary Islamic thought, and for good reason. We are all indebted to his scholarship and to his theological insights. Earlier, I talked about this idea of not just contextualizing the Qur'an in the 7th century, but then also recontextualizing its teachings in the 21st century. That is straight from Fazlur Rahman's double movement theory. Fazlur Rahman, in trying to reconcile Islam and modernity, basically said that we need to have two interpretive movements. The first movement is about stepping into a time capsule and going back to the 7th century. We get out of that time capsule and we do two things. The first thing is we understand through an exhaustive study the society in which the Qur'an was revealed, 7th century Arabia. What did the economics of that society look like? The political system, the tribal structure, the cultural structure, the literary traditions. Once we understand that, we can then contextualize the Qur'an properly. And from that contextualization, we can extract wider ethical moral principles. Once we have those ethical moral principles in hand, we can then step back into our time capsule and commence the second movement of the double movement theory. And that second movement is about coming back to our own time, the present time, the 21st century, and taking those principles and translating them into specific ways of adhering to the Quran's teachings. So that is the double movement theory. Extremely important, and it has been particularly influential in shaping gender egalitarian interpretations of the Quran, in particular, Amina Wadud scholarship. That being said, I have a couple of reservations. Firstly, and I would concur with Farid Sak's critique of Fazlur Rahman, it is not that simple to produce principles. There is nothing axiomatic, there is nothing automatic when it comes to concluding a principle from a particular setting. You may come up with a particular principle. I may come up with a very different principle. So this goes back to the who question of liberation theology. Who gets to produce a certain principle and to whose benefit will that principle be? All right. So concrete example, taqwa, right? We can think of taqwa as a clear principle, but what does it mean? Is it something that is individual that I create, I engender, I cultivate taqwa within the self? Or is it something that is social? That no, for me, taqwa will be about standing up for the rights of not just society, but those who are on the margins of society. Those are two very different understandings of what? The same principle. So whose understanding gets to become the genuine understanding of a particular principle, in this case, taqwa? So that's one critique. But zooming out, the larger critique is that Fazlur Rahman's theory, while being very erudite, is precisely that. It's very erudite. It's scholarly. It is something that you need to be trained in Islamic studies to engage with, 
right? So there's certain assumptions at play here, assumptions that we cannot treat as invisible. You would have to be someone who had the privilege to go to university or had the privilege to go to Hoza, a Shia Islamic seminary, go to Azhar, uh, a Sunni Islamic seminary, to learn the methods and then to use the methods to come up with those principles and then to reapply them in the present time. What if you're a laborer who hasn't gone to university? Does that mean that your insights don't matter? There's a wonderful article written by the South African feminist theologian Saadia Sheikh called A Tafsir of Praxis. And here she looks at how eight battered women in Cape Town interpret the Quran in the light of their own experiences of oppression. In particular, they grapple with the so-called wife-beating verse, Quran 4, verse 34. And Saadia Sheikh shows that they come up with profound theological insights drawing from their own lived experiences without having had any schooling in Islamic studies, traditional, critical, or otherwise. So at its core, that's my problem with the theory, is that it's elitist, and we need to apply questions of class when engaging the double movement theory. The, the theme of taqwa and its, its relationship with, so speaking of taqwa, you just, you just brought up taqwa, and I, it, it serves kind of as a teaser um, for my for my next question, because I would love to hear more about this. But the theme of taqwa and its relationship with social justice um, figures prominently throughout the book. And in some cases, it's also tawheed and social justice. So you just told us briefly what the relationship between uh, taqwa and social justice is. Mm-hmm. What about, and if you could elaborate on that, that would be great. And also, what about tawheed and social justice? What, how can one, how, how can one connect these two um, in any way as related to liberation or liberating theology or social justice? Okay, so in terms of taqwa, I think we really need to think about what does it mean to talk about piety? Um, is piety something that is ritualistic? As I mentioned earlier, is it something that we cultivate within ourselves as individuals? Or is it about transforming existing structures in our society that don't allow certain people in our society to be fully human, to have full human dignity? So that's the question that Islamic liberation theology raises in terms of taqwa. Is it individually understood or is it socially understood? And what's the idea? Is the idea of simply submitting to the one God or is the idea to bring a social message to that submission? And this brings us to tawhid. Tawhid is a fundamental paradigm in Islamic liberation theology. We see it in the gender egalitarian theology of Amanu Wadud and Asma Barlas. But going back in time, we also see it in the discourse of the Iranian revolutionary Ali Shariati. And we also see it in the discourse of the African-American Muslim revolutionary Malcolm X. He talks about the relationship between social justice and Tawheed as well. Malcolm X talks about it in terms of race. Shariati talks about it in terms of class. And Barlas and Wadud talk about it in terms of gender. They're talking about different contexts, but they're all making the same argument. What does it mean that God is one and just at the same time? What does that mean? And for these thinkers, if God is just and one at the same time, then the oneness of that God has to translate into the oneness of a society that is not divided by injustice. So for shariati, In terms of economic justice, it means that we have to create a society that is not economically stratified. 
For Malcolm X, it's about creating a society that is not racially divided between white Americans and black Americans. And for Amin Wadud and Asma Barlas, it's about patriarchy, that if God is one, then it behooves us as submitters and lovers of the one God to create a society that is free of patriarchy and that does not divide uh, society between men and women. And a big part of that dividing is about associating men in some sort of way with the one God, as if men have a certain affinity to the one God that women as a social group somehow lack. And so Tawheed is about negating that. It's about saying no to that and saying, if there is one God, then there is one humanity. Um, you note in your discussion of Bralas's work that her idea of patriarchy is largely misunderstood, and I could not agree more. What does she mean by patriarchy when she argues that the Quran is not just non-patriarchal, but it's also anti-patriarchal? That's a great question. Um, people tend to think that Amin Wadud and Asma Barlas are doing the same thing. I would intervene and say they're doing similar things. They have related projects, but they're actually different projects. Amna Wadud is looking at representations of women in the text. So she's really interested in the creation story, the events of the garden, representations of the day of judgment, the hereafter, and various women's issues, such as inheritance, domestic violence, and so forth. Barlas is interested in patriarchy in the text. So she raises some very interesting questions. Does the Qur'an represent God as being a father-like figure? By extension, does the Qur'an represent the prophets as being father-like figures? And by extension, does the Qur'an set up some sort of special relationship, some sort of affinity between biological fathers themselves and the one God? And so she does the research and shows that is actually not the case. So, for example, prophets and fathers. She looks at the story of Abraham and she shows that Abraham actually commits one of the most anti-patriarchal acts, which is rebellion against the patriarch of his family, actually rebelling against his own father. In terms of Muhammad, she accents. I mean, none of this is new knowledge, but a big part of liberating scholarship is not necessarily producing something new, but accenting what we know, but don't appreciate the significance of. She accents that not only did the prophet lose his father before he was born, but that he himself did not father sons. And fathering sons is a fundamental practice to the production and the reproduction of patriarchy. Um, so, and, and what's really interesting is we tend to think of Abraham, going back to Abraham, as, as sort of the patriarch. And I've even heard progressive Muslim scholars refer to Abraham as the patriarch. If you look at the Qur'an, Abraham is not referred at any point as being a patriarch. He's referred to as an imam, a leader. He's referred to as Khalilullah, the friend of God, an ummah, a paragon of faith, and a hanif, a monotheist. But he is never referred to as a patriarch. And so this language of negation, not just showing what the text says, but at the same time showing what the text does not say, is fundamental to gender egalitarian interpretations of the text. I would love to hear about the interview, your interview process for this research. When did you start? When did you finish? How was your experience reaching out to them, talking with them? Um, any challenges in the process and so on? So this research, uh, this book emerged uh, out of my PhD thesis, which I did at Oxford. 
And I reached out to these scholars and I interviewed each of them. A couple of them I interviewed with my wife who was with me. And that was really cool. Like she wasn't just my wife. She was my comrade in progressive Islamic struggle. So we interviewed uh, a couple of the scholars together. Um, and something that really struck me was how easy it was to interview them. Something that really struck me was how down to earth all of them really are as people. And for me, that was really important. It was about walking the walk, not just talking the talk, because their talk was about egalitarianism and inclusivity. And what I found was when I interviewed them, and I really interviewed them for a while, I mean, you know, this, these were in-depth interviews, they were very patient and they were very accessible. I interviewed, as an example, I interviewed Amina Wadud in Norway, um, because she was coming for a conference. And so I went there. This was back in 2009. And I interviewed her there. And before we started the interview, we were in the lecture hall getting ready to leave. And I realized that my microphone had fallen in between the seats somewhere and I couldn't find it. For 30 minutes, she looked for the microphone with me. And I was so embarrassed. Um, and she was like, don't be embarrassed at all. These things happen, you know. Um, but there was a humility to that. And and that for me, and it was not something that was just particular to her. It's something that I saw in all the scholars. Um, that for me was something um, that, that really moved me. And it's something that I try to live out in my own, my own work as, as, as a teacher um, and an aspiring scholar of Islam. You know, I, I have to agree. My own experiences with them, um, the only person I wasn't able to have any such experiences with was um, a scholarly engineer. But um, as you know, I, I I mentioned to you, I was um, I was a colleague of Asma's at um, at Ithaca, and um, Amina Wadud and Isaac as well. Like they've been, they're very accessible. They're very kind um, in their demeanor and in their interactions with, especially in my case when I was a graduate student. And so mm. um, I, I I I agree. My experience has been very similar with them. Um, and speaking of these interviews, did they do they engage each other's work in their conversations with you? That's a great question. Um, of course, they know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that they have learned from each other. And they are, of course, in solidarity with each other. Everyone has a particular project. But the idea, as Frida Sak puts it, is to unravel the whole ball of yarn. So we're going at that ball from different positions. But the goal is to create a comprehensively just society at all levels, gender, race, class, sexuality, and so forth. Um, but that being said, they didn't really engage each other in the interviews. They engaged their primary interlocutor, their primary conversation partner, which was the Quranic text. That makes sense. Um, is there anything else that you'd like your listeners and our potential leaders, readers to hear about this book? Anything that we haven't talked about or anything that you want to expand on? I would add, um, or I would say just at the end, that this book is an invitation, right? And it's not about the book. It's about the wider field of liberation theology. It's an invitation for people to engage religion themselves. Um, It's about saying, I don't need others to interpret the text for me. If others interpret that, that is something that I can accept. I can exercise my own agency and I can accept that. But if I want to engage the text directly myself, whatever text it is, it doesn't necessarily have to be the Quran. It could be the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawi. It could be a mystical text by Ibn Arabi. But the idea is about challenging the gatekeepers of the sacred. It's about saying, I want to parachute into the center and I want to have a direct encounter 
with the center. And those eloquent words aren't my own, they're Faridah's Haqs. And that's how he describes it, that I want to parachute into the center. I want to trust, I want to pass the gatekeepers and I want to have a direct encounter with the center. However, you define that center. And for me, it really is about scripture. And that's what this book is about. If there's one thing that you take away from the book is the importance of you exercising your agency as a believer uh, or not, maybe as a thinker or a critical observer, but to exercise your agency and to approach the texts directly. And as we close now, um, please tell us about any current or future projects that you're working on and that we can look forward to in the future. So right now, my work is moving into the direction of Islam and Native American rights. And in the context of Canada, the Native American peoples are referred to as First Nations peoples. And here I'm reflecting on my own subject position as a Canadian Muslim and therefore as a settler colonialist. And I'm sort of asking what are the ethical implications of being a Muslim settler? In my particular context, Vancouver. Vancouver is not just a settler colony that is built on the blood of indigenous peoples. It is a province. It is, well, the province of British Columbia and the city of Vancouver. These lands were never ceded by indigenous peoples to English colonialists. So in other parts of Canada, the the native peoples were bamboozled. They were tricked. They were signed into giving up lands that they didn't realize fully that they were giving up and didn't realize fully the implications of giving up that land. But in Vancouver, colonialists walked in and they just took what they wanted. And for me, I'm trying to understand the ethical implications of that in terms of my submission to the one God. If I believe that the one God is just, and if my own subject position is one of being a settler colonialist, what are my obligations to the indigenous peoples of the land? That community is wrought overwhelmingly with poverty. Can I truly submit to the one God if I'm not acknowledging that? And to be frank, I don't think Muslims in Canada or in other settler colonies, Muslims in America, Muslims in Australia, Muslims in New Zealand, have really reflected on their calling uh, when it comes to indigenous peoples. We're very good at doing it in terms of our own peoples. I talked about my commitment to the Palestinian cause, and I'm deeply committed to opposing Israeli apartheid and supporting the Palestinian liberation struggle. But this isn't about supporting people because they happen, at least the majority of them, to be Muslim. It's about supporting people because they're occupied. And that means that we need to look in the mirror when we're on the other side of that power relationship and we are complicit in the occupation of other people's land. So for me, this is really about globalizing the Palestinian struggle by connecting it to the plight of Native Americans in settler colonies. That's beautiful. I look forward to it very much. Thank you for that. Um, Okay, well, this brings our interview to a close. Thank you so much for joining me, and um, I'll see you next time, inshallah. Thank you so much for inviting me, Shahnaz. I really uh, appreciate it. Okay, so that was my conversation with Shadab Rahmatullah on his book, Quran of the Oppressed, Liberation, Theology, and Gender Justice in Islam, published with Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for listening, and please take care of yourselves and stay as healthy and responsible as humanly possible, given our circumstances. I'll entertain you again soon.